Hi guys, I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And we are here recording Lost in the Woods. Thanks for joining us today. Yes. We are very excited to be back again for another week. And today we are bringing you a crazy case about Jenny Bastian and Michelle Welch, who both went missing from Tacoma, Washington, which by the way, is also the home of Ted Bundy, if you didn't know. By the way, while doing research for this case, I learned one very important thing. Which, uh, I'm waiting. Do not move to Tacoma. Ever, ever, ever. Oh, also Tacoma stinks. The aroma of Tacoma. It's like a thing. Yeah, tell me, if you live in Tacoma, do you still smell it? So, on March 26, 1986, Michelle Welch, who was 12 years old, would go missing. She was in the sixth grade and had blonde hair and blue eyes. Barbara Leonard, her mother, purchased a new home for her and her three daughters. So we have Nicole, Angela, and Michelle. It was spring break, and the girls wanted to go to Puget Park that day, but their mom is working. This park was a few miles from their new home and just across the street from where their piano lessons were to be that day. Michelle begged her mom to let them go before their lesson, and then they could just go straight to their lesson after playing at the park. Their mom gave in and let them take their bikes to the park, and then they would go to their lesson. They left home around 10 a.m., and Michelle and one of her sisters were on their bikes, and the other one was actually on roller skates, which I used to roller skate the shit out of things when I was this age. Yeah, I had my own set of roller skates at this age. Uh-huh. I was going to the skating rink every single Friday at this yeah. age. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hey mom, could you drop could you drop me and Mackenzie off at the roller skating rink? <laughs> so once at the park around lunchtime, the girls realized that they had forgotten their lunches. So Michelle went to ride back to the house to get their lunches while the other two played at the park. And this is not a small park. This is a giant park surrounded by woods. Right, so if you don't live in Washington or you're not familiar with some of our parks, we have a lot of parks that are actually, there might be a little playground and some picnic tables, but there are also woods and trails and sometimes water, and it's a pretty massive park. Most of our parks are pretty massive. So if you're imagining like just a playground, this is not it. This is not that. So Maddie just looked up the park. There's a lot of trees and paths and picnic tables. There is a play structure. Yeah, it looks nice. Yeah. While waiting, Nicole and Angela needed to use the bathroom, but there are no restrooms at this park. So they decided to go down the street to a local business where they could use the bathroom. And while there, they called home to check on Michelle, but there was no answer. They got back to the park around 1.15, where they found Michelle's bike locked up and their lunches sitting on the picnic table. Oh no, these sisters probably have so much. Yeah. What they didn't see was any sign of Michelle. Okay, so they called out for her and even used the family bird call. Kind of cool. Why don't we have a family bird call? I feel like we need a family bird call now. Okay. 
I definitely will not be able to do that. It's so <laughs> easy, actually. I guess that's our bird call, which none of us are going to be good at. The girls then called the police at 310. So they got back to the park at 115? Yeah. So they... Took and by 310, they're already panicked. Because her bike is there, their food is there, but she is not there. And she was in charge of them. She's yeah. the oldest sibling. Yeah, so pure panic. But I am not surprised that it did take them that long to call the police or anything because they're children, you know? Especially not in the 80s. But yeah. Now, I think that would have probably happened faster, but in the 80s. So the police notified their mom and the search began right then and there. So search and rescue was called in when it started to get dark. Mm. A witness who was a 13-year-old classmate of Michelle told police that he saw a man at the park that day that seemed to be watching the girls. He said he was under the Proctor Bridge and described him as white, mid-20s, and about 5'6", and said that he was wearing blue jeans, a blue jean jacket that had holes in it, and was dirty and ripped, and had white tennis shoes on. A sketch was done, but they were never able to find this man. Not surprised. Shocking. So another witness who was a man who worked at Michelle's school, said that around 1.30 he had driven by the park and seen Michelle talking to a man who he described as possibly Hispanic, 25 to 35, about 5'8", black hair, possibly mustache, and light-colored clothing. Neither of these men were ever located. Very frustrating. Again, though, witness statements can be super unreliable, especially oh, yeah. if there's no... We, we were talking about this the other day. Like, to commit something really well to your memory, you have to put conscious effort into it. So if you see something in passing, the chances of you remembering it, unless for some reason it stands out to you, are very slim. Yeah. People don't realize how hard it is to remember something that you casually see in passing. Yeah, they did a thing at school in our history classes where they had another kid from a history class walk in take something, say something, and walk out. Mm -hmm. And then the teacher was like, because it was super random, and it was completely different. They took an account from each and every one of us of what we saw, and nobody was 100% correct. Yep, I believe it. Because I was wrong on the color shirt he was wearing. Yep. Searching continued till nightfall. They had dogs and volunteers, and it was actually a search dog that found Michelle's body around 11.30 p.m., she was in an overgrown gulch about a quarter mile from the play area where she had left her bike. There was a makeshift fire next to her, but her body was not burned at all. She had been beaten, sexually assaulted, and her throat had been slit. I just, I just can't with this. Like, this little girl is the same age as Cordelia. This little girl is the same age as my daughter. I cannot even imagine her going through something like this. Mm -mm. All right, now that things have escalated very quickly, you're welcome. Yeah, that escalated really fast. Actually, I had to like stop for a second before I started reading that one because it happened so fast that they found her body, like no other information in between. Yeah, so after months of following up every tip that they received, one from a man jogging, a jogger, a runner, a man, a man running jogging of some sort. He said that he had seen a man matching the sketch from the first witness. Right. So the 13-year-old classmate. Yeah. He said that he had seen this man at Point Defiance Park. Yep. 100% been to that park, which is only a few miles from Puget Park. 
This made police believe that he might have been searching for a new victim, but police were unable to locate this man. That's terrifying. Can you imagine a few miles away, a couple months later, somebody's like, I definitely saw that guy in this park. Yeah. You would. You would think he was looking for a new victim. On August 4, 1986, so five months after Michelle was found, 13-year-old Jennifer Bastian would go missing. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. She liked playing sports and was described as being a bit rough and tumble. Jenny and her mom woke up that day and decided to enjoy the sun in the dining room in front of their patio doors before her mom had to go to work for the night shift. Jenny had gotten a new Schwinn bicycle and she planned to ride the YMCA tour of Lopez Island event and she'd been planning to ride with a friend on a little training this day and her friend ended up backing out at the last minute. Her mom and dad were working, so she called her dad to ask for permission to ride her bike around the five-mile drive and trails near the Point Defiance Park, which also includes the Point Defiance Zoo and Aquarium. It's a five-mile road, but there's a shoulder. You can ride your bike on it. Yeah. And, of course, she calls dad because dad's more likely to say yes, I'm sure. Always. Dad, If I would like to know if you grew up in a household where dad was... The one that was less likely to say yes. Phoenix is growing up in that household. Oh, shit. You're totally right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Phoenix Wait. will be asking me when she wants to do something. 100%. Because me growing up, it was dad that we'd always ask because dad didn't give an absolute flying ass of anything we did growing up. Yeah. So it was always yes. And then it'd be like, we'd ask you and then you'd say no and then we'd be like, We should ask dad. Because our rule in our house was if one parent said no, you can't go ask the other one. Yes. Her dad wasn't thrilled about the idea, but told her that she could go, but that she needed to be home by 6.30 p.m. Jenny left a note for her mom and took off on her bike around 2.30. The note said, at, and she did like the at symbol. I'll post a picture of the note. It's really cute. She did like the at symbol. PD, which stands for point defiance, I'm assuming, Try to be home by 6.30, latest, Jenny. And she underlined Jenny for some reason. Oh, and just for August over here, sun doesn't set till like 9.30. As a child who grew up not far from here in the 80s, that was our rule. When the outside lights switched on, you had to be home. Dude, I feel like that was literally the rule for every single human being in your like generation. generation. Yeah, it was. It was. Lights. So I would get up in the morning, I would grab some snacks, I would jump on my bike, I would go meet up with Daniel Ray, and we would go ride to the train tracks. We would ride all day long, wherever we wanted. We just had to be home before the lights came on. Yes, I had very strict parameters that I had to keep my bike in Yes, because you grew up in a different era where we now knew about all these fucking predators that attacked children in the 80s and 90s. And we were terrified by the time the 2000s came along. Okay, so at 8.30, Patty got a call from her husband telling her that she needed to come home. Terrifying. That's terrifying. He told her that Jenny was hours past due. So police began searching the park and instructed the parents to stay home in case she comes home. Yeah, that's not happening, by the way. I am not staying home if one of my children go missing. Maddie can attest to this because I have had a child go missing and the last place I was at was at home. But we will actually tell you 
that story at the end. So you'll get to hear it at the end because I don't want to interrupt this story now. Yeah. There were three boys that came forward who were classmates of Jenny's. They said that around 4.10, they saw her riding her bike in the opposite direction of Five Mile Drive. They said there was a man riding near her, but she didn't seem concerned or in distress. Okay, so two more witnesses came forward saying that they had seen a girl fitting Jenny's description between 3 and 5 at Dalco Passage Viewpoint. They said that she dropped her helmet on the ground while drinking from her water bottle, and apparently she was talking about training for an upcoming ride. So I would guess that this is a legitimate sighting uh-huh. based on that. And the three boys might be legitimate too because they knew her, so they would probably recognize yeah. her. At 11 p.m., police went to the Bastion home to retrieve an article of clothing for the search dogs, but they found nothing. And you guys, they even closed down Point Defiance Park, which is a huge park, for three days while they searched for Jenny. There were hundreds of people searching, but yet they found no sign of Jenny or her bike anywhere. Her sister, Teresa, who was 15, pleaded for her sister to come home on news outlets. That's so sad. So Barbara, who is Michelle's mom, went to visit Patty to offer her support. And when she left, Patty actually said, I'm not sure why she came here. My Jenny's not dead. This, I don't know why, just like fucking breaks my heart. Like this mom who was in a similar situation five months previous stops by to offer support. And Jenny's mom's like, what is she even doing here? My daughter's just lost. She's going to come home. So initially, it was thought that Jenny was just lost in the woods or had been kidnapped. There was no initial thought given to the cases being connected. Why? Because right now, there's just a missing kid. They're not assuming... Because they remember, they found Michelle the same day. Yeah, well, obviously, he got smarter. Okay, so it would be March 28, which was 24 days after Jenny had gone missing before her body was found. A group of joggers were out in an overgrown footpath when they came across her bike. It was hidden with fern leaves and her body was a little further down, covered by what was described as an igloo of sticks and leaves. Right, so she had kind of just been like, uh, had a bunch of stuff like piled on top of her. Police went to the Bastion house where they found Jennifer's mom painting the dining room, no doubt in attempt to distract herself because it's been 24 days since her little girl went missing. The detective actually took the paint roller out of her hand and led her to sit down before telling her that they found Jenny and that she was dead. She had been strangled and sexually assaulted. So now that they found her, now that they know that she was murdered, and obviously people have already been jumping to this conclusion, but the big question was, are these two cases connected? I mean, both girls were riding bikes. They were near in parks. They both have blonde hair, blue eyes. Same age. So Puget Park in Point Defiance Park would be about a 30-minute bike apart from each other. Yep. So that's really in close proximity. They're both in Tacoma. This could definitely be the same predator hunting in parks nearby. Looking on these on a map, they are very, very close in proximity. Yeah. And these parks are only three miles apart. Yeah, 3.2 miles to be exact. Which, according to my map, is an eight-minute drive. 
So, police did have one possible suspect initially in this case, and it was a man named David Fisher. He was spending time in prison for second-degree manslaughter. He had murdered and sexually assaulted Laura Burbank, and she was 13 years old and had been murdered in Tacoma in 1970. He knew Laura and had convinced her to come and meet him, and he had sexually assaulted her and bashed her over the head. Now, you might wonder how he could be a suspect, but in 1974, he was on a prison farm with no walls and minimal security when he just walked off the farm and was never seen again. Good. Let's have all the sex offenders on a farm. Or fishing at the river. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They didn't even know he was missing until hours later that evening. Fisher was 29 at the time, and he didn't match the description given by any of the witnesses. Also, the M.O. was a little different, but he could have adapted since he was on the run. Now, in 1989, Fisher was arrested after an unsolved mystery episode and was ruled out in this case. So initially, he's a suspect, but we do find out later that he's not. Okay. And the reason they're able to rule him out is because they do have DNA. Oh, yeah. Either way, both cases go cold. In 2011, a cold case duo, Detective Gene Miller and Lindsay Wade, started looking into this case. Lindsay was actually 11 years old when the murder happened, so she was around the age of the girls. And she remembers it changing her life. They had a list of, oh my God, they had a list of 2,300 suspects. And they believed this killer had to have a record. So semen had been found on Michelle's body, but none on Jennifer. But they still had Jennifer's swimsuit because remember, she was sunbathing with her mom in the morning before she went on her bike ride. And they decided to send it out for testing. And guess what? They found semen on it. And big news, they also found that the semen did not match the sample that was found on Michelle's body. So so they now know that there are two killers in this case instead of one, which is crazy. There was also no match in the database for either sample. So the DNA was sent to Parabon, who did snapshots of both men. And those were circulated to the population. So these are like the DNA profile where they guess or they they estimate what somebody looks they like. They make an educated guess based on your DNA. Right. And these can be, we have seen these be very accurate and we have seen these be very inaccurate. So some of it does include a little guesswork. It's not exact science, but now we at least have two different faces to go with I these guess. two killers. Lindsay Wade contacted Colleen Fitzpatrick, who is an expert in forensic genealogy. Her partner had since retired, and she was kind of on her own now trying to solve these cases. So Colleen was able to find a close match in Jennifer's case. When the DNA was submitted through genealogy websites, they began investigating the names attached to the close relatives, but nothing really raised any red flags. Like none of the relatives who were closely matched to this DNA stood out. There was, however, one oddity, and that was the name Washbourne. And this name was in their file, but not as a suspect, but a witness. So if you remember the jogger that called in the tip saying that he 
saw a man in Point Defiance Park that looked like the sketch of Michelle's killer. This was months after Michelle was killed and before Jennifer was killed. So remember, police thought that he might be searching for a new victim in Point Defiance Park now. Okay, so in 2016, the sketches were released to the public, and this is when they also announced that they had two different killers. Can you imagine, like, everybody has always thought this was one killer, and now all of a sudden you realize there's two... Psychopaths out there? Yeah, two predators hunting children in parks miles away from each other. So with this new information, they received a new wave of tips, but nothing led to anything. So Detective Wade decided to prioritize their suspect list. She started collecting DNA from the most likely suspects and also, as a bonus, grabbed a DNA sample from the witness, Washbourne, whose name came up in the genealogy. She collected 160 high-priority samples and began the slow process of having them tested. It had to be done in batches because this is expensive and time-consuming, so it would take years for them to get all of them through the system. But by 2018, Wade was getting ready to retire, and she submitted her last batch on her way out the door, literally. So this was 18 final samples. 25 days later, she got a call from the detective that replaced her and said there was a match to the DNA on Jenny. It was 60-year-old Robert Washbourne. Yeah, you guys. She just happened to grab this extra sample because the name came up in their genealogy stuff, and he turns out to be a match for Jenny's murderer. So this man had lived a normal life since he murdered Jenny, He had a job, he paid taxes, he stayed out of trouble. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. Uh, Was he married? Yeah. Had kids? Yep. Had grandkids, probably? I don't know about grandkids, but probably. 60? They brought him in for questioning, and he seemed very nervous. He asked if this was about the swab that he had given to police years ago and insisted that he didn't kill that little girl. But on January 25, 2019, he pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and was sentenced to 27 years in prison, which would likely be a life sentence for him. He said he had grabbed Jennifer by the arm and drug her into the woods and then strangled her. There was no mention of a sexual assault, which he probably didn't want to fess up to. No, but we know there was. Your semen doesn't just get on there. Right. What I would like to know is why he called in the tip about Michelle's case. So that, to me, says that even then he was thinking about doing the same thing and was trying to insert himself into the investigation. Mm -hmm. He, however, has not offered up a why or any further information. It was honestly for him probably a, like, he saw this. He saw, he heard on the news about some guy taking a young girl Mm -hmm. and, you know, sexually assaulting her and all that stuff, and he... It probably just jump-started him where he was like, I can do that. That's what I, like... Right. Like, it almost inspired him, for lack of better words. Yeah, sick. So, in 2018, they set out to find Michelle's killer because, remember, two different killers, they still haven't found one of them. Right. So, the DNA from her case was used in the then-new forensic genealogy technique, used for familiar matches. Well, and remember, this is the... Same process that caught the Golden State Killer. Okay, sick. 
So this led them to two brothers, one of which they thought would be a match. So detectives followed the one brother to a restaurant where they sat 10 feet away and observed him using a napkin to wipe his mouth multiple times. He then put it in a bag and left it on the table where detectives were able to retrieve it. And it was a match to the semen found on Michelle. Yep. So on June 20, 2018, 40 days after Washburn was arrested and 32 years after Michelle was murdered, her mother, Barbara, finally got the call that she had probably at this point thought was never coming. Oh, yeah. And this call was that they had arrested Gary Hartman without incident during a traffic stop. I've been watching a lot of those happen, like the purposeful traffic stop mm-hmm. when they get you because I've been watching the show How to Catch a Smuggler. Mm-hmm. And they do it so much on the show. I didn't even know that was a thing. Controlled traffic stops. And they had begun monitoring him on June 14. So it took them a little while to find a piece of his DNA. But he actually seemed to lead a normal life. He went to work at the Western State Hospital where he was a nurse. Like, just outliving his life. So Michelle's sister, Nicole, said, You think 32 years later you should be okay. But it's not. It's still real all the time. And her sister was nine at the time of her sister's death. Yeah, that's just crazy. So Gary Hartman is 66 years old. He was 34 when he murdered Michelle. He was a nurse in a psychiatric hospital and had no record. He had no history of violent crimes, and he seemed to live a normal life. He was married with two teenage daughters and had mostly stayed in the area. His neighbors describe him as friendly, And he was known to ride around in vintage cars with his wife. There is, however, a gap between 1986 and 1998 where they aren't sure what he was doing. Probably killing more little girls. Exactly. And you guys, we're going to play you a clip from the press conference right now. So here you go. Thank you all uh, for being here and joining with us on this very important day. I think I'll start out with a message uh, to those who do harm to the members and great citizens of Tacoma. If you think you can run, you're wrong. If you think you can hide, you're wrong. If you think that the Tacoma Police Department is gonna give up, you're wrong. The Tacoma Police Department will never give up. Our priority is public safety. Our priority is bringing justice to victims of crimes and their families. It is extraordinary that I would be standing here again just a little over a month after bringing you news of the Jennifer Bastion case, another 32-year-old cold case that our department investigated and solved. So all thanks to the great work, diligence, of the men and women of the Tacoma Police Department. These cases truly represent the crossroads of good old-fashioned police work combined with improvements in technology. The advancements in DNA identification and computer modeling combined with tried and true policing techniques continue to provide results. This case is a great example of that. 
On Wednesday, June 20th, 2018, in the city of Lakewood, we arrested Gary Hartman as a suspect in the murder of Michelle Welch. He was taken into custody during a traffic stop following several days of surveillance by our detectives. The suspect was cooperative and the arrest occurred without incident. He is currently being held in the Pierce County Jail awaiting for arraignment. Search warrants have been executed at the Hartman's residence in Lakewood, as well as his place of employment, as this investigation continues to unfold. In the way of background of those of you who were living in Tacoma back in 1986, as I was, a rookie police officer at the time, you may recall that this horrific crime shook our community. The crime scene was processed for evidence, and unknown DNA was recovered at the time. A number of men were investigated for the crime based on witness statements relating to males being seen in the area. Gary Hartman was not one of those individuals. For many years, it was suspected that the same person who killed Michelle Welch was also responsible for the murder of Jenny Bastion. The two incidents occurred just within several months apart of each other. In 2013, a DNA profile was obtained in the case of Jennifer Bastion. It was determined then that the profiles were separate. And for the first time, investigators knew they were looking for two separate suspects. In 2016, the Tacoma Police Department worked with Parabon Nanolabs on a DNA phenotype profile. That profile yielded a composite that described the characteristics of a possible suspect, which includes hair color, eye color, skin tone, and body type. In May 2018, our cold case unit continued its work with Parabon Nanolabs, specifically their genetic genealogist, in hopes of locating a possible suspect from the suspect DNA initially recovered at the crime scene of Michelle Welch. Genetic genealogy uses a DNA technology to identify subjects by matching the unknown profile to a family member. Traditional genealogy is then used to build a family tree from publicly available websites. Through this process, two brothers were identified as possible suspects. Additionally, the age of the brothers made them capable of committing this crime, and they both lived in the north end of Tacoma in 1986. Armed with that information, we collected abandoned DNA from the two brothers. The DNA samples were then sent to the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab. On Tuesday, June 19th, the lab contacted us with a match between the original DNA and the sample collected from Gary Hartman. That led to his arrest on Wednesday, the 20th of June, and closed a chapter in this long-standing cold case. Over the course of the last 32 years, the Michelle Welch case has been investigated by numerous detectives from the Tacoma Police Department. I would like to thank each of them for their hard work and their diligence, their vigilance uh, during these investigations. Good afternoon, I'm Mark Lindquist. I'm your county prosecutor. Jennifer Bastian and Michelle Welch were among the main reasons that we formed a cold case team with the Cone Police Department in 2011. As Chief Ramsdell noted, those cases stunned the city in 1986 and stayed with us. There have been advances in DNA technology and we have been staying on top 
of those advances. Today, we're at a point where if you're a criminal and you've left your DNA at the scene, you might as well turn yourself in now. We will catch you. We have charged Mr. Hartman with murder in the first degree and rape in the first degree. We'll be arraigning him on those charges Monday. I'd just like to close by thanking the Tacoma Police Department, the FBI, and the Crime Lab, and everybody else who worked these cases, including the people out in the community who communicated with us. Uh, we appreciate the teamwork, we appreciate the collaboration, and we are happy to be delivering justice and some closure for the community. Thank you. We followed him into a restaurant uh, where he was routinely going about his day. Um, he had gone to the restaurant with a co-worker uh, ordered some coffee and something to eat and sat down at a table. Uh, I ordered some coffee for myself uh, and sat down uh, at a table nearby where I could observe his actions. I observed him uh, using the napkin multiple times. Um, he crumpled it up, put it into a bag, then crumpled that bag up and then uh, voluntarily abandoned that bag uh, as he left the restaurant. Uh, and I was able to uh, collect it and get that submitted to the lab. It is exciting, um, but of course there's, there's a lot of work to do um, even after that moment takes place. Um, and there are a lot of detectives that were involved in doing that surveillance, a lot of detectives that were involved in uh, affecting the arrest. Um, so uh, it, it is an exciting moment for us. Um, but we also have to stay focused and uh, continue with the job we need to do. I have um, uh, spoke with Michelle's mom, um, Barbara Leonard. Uh, she is uh, ecstatic. Um, I was working at the time, so uh, the chief had the honor of, of calling her and uh, initially breaking the news to her. Um, she told me that that sent chills down her spine. And uh, I've had multiple conversations with her since. Uh, she's very grateful uh, and very excited. Uh, my favorite part about that press conference was definitely the comment that he made about if you committed a crime and you left your DNA, you might as well turn yourself in now because we're going to get you. Who said that? <laughs> that we just played for them. Oh, yeah. I like that part. <laughs> I've never heard this press conference. I don't know what's happening. Why did you look at me to talk? Like, I've heard the press conference. I just assumed you'd, like, chime in with, like, yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I don't know what press conference is being played. Uh. <laughs> in 2019, a law was signed that would expand law enforcement's DNA database. It was named after Jennifer and Michelle. It is called the Jennifer Bastion and Michelle Welch Law. The law allows law enforcement to obtain DNA samples from deceased sex offenders and those convicted of indecent exposure. Now, I find this really interesting because this could actually solve a ton of cold cases, which is why I'm assuming they fought for that. Yeah. Oh, and I have a recording. Jennifer's mom actually testified in favor of this law. Okay. So here's a clip of that. By ensuring that DNA is uh, collected properly and entered into our national DNA database known as CODIS. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Patty Bastion. 
And if you look at the subtitle of the bill, it's the Jennifer Bastion and Michelle Welsh bill. I can speak personally as to the positive effect DNA collection and processing has. A 32-year-old, two 32-year-old cold cases were solved with this technology, among others, and tremendous detective work. Um, I can't speak enough for the parents who are waiting for answers, for victims who are waiting for answers, as well as the possible deterrent that this bill by itself may, may cause. Um, if you know you're going to get caught if you do a crime, particularly a sexual one, against another person, perhaps you'll think twice about doing it. Thank you. Yeah, I just think that her mom is incredible. I mean, she had worked for four years to expand the state's DNA database. And here now her work is paying off. I think a big question here is, are there other victims? Possibly. I would say 100% there has to be. If these two men killed, especially because they got away with it, it would just be too great for them to resist. Maybe the thrill wasn't what they expected, which would be very coincidental if this happened for both of them. But maybe the fear and anxiety of waiting to get caught, maybe that was enough to prevent them from doing it again. Maybe uh, you could justify one of them only doing it once, but there's two of them. There's no way they both only did it once. There's no way that they yeah. both have that small sliver of chance that it's like a one-time kill, one-time thing. It would be very, very unusual. For both of them to have this one time, two different... Mm. So I looked up some other cases that are unsolved. In the same area with, let me guess, similar circumstances. Or ages, yes. So I basically took the list of unsolved, missing, or murdered young females in the age range that Michelle and Jennifer were, I eliminated anybody that was older than like 17. Okay. Because some 17-year-olds can still look young or look like a teenager. So Are you saying something to me? Yes. You look like you're 12. 100%. Okay. That is straight disrespect. <laughs> straight disrespect. Oh, and they also had to be in the same time frame as well. Mm. So area, time frame, age. Similar circumstances, yeah. On January 7 of 1980 in Tacoma, Washington, so same place, 12-year-old... Same exact place. Didn't even go out of town. I know. 12-year-old Carla Wright, who got up every morning at 4 a.m. to do her paper route. Oh. I know. She was generous with her money. She often bought candy for neighborhood kids she was on the drill team and loved riding her motocross bike. She was a great kid. On this day, she had asked her mom for a ride to school. This actually, like, breaks my heart. Her mom had a doctor's appointment and couldn't take her that day. They bickered and kind of went back and forth about this ride, and it ended with Carla having to walk. Her mom couldn't take her. But they argued about it. She left home at 8 a.m. and took a shortcut to Gray's Junior High School, but never arrived and was never seen again. Dude, I bet you her mom is just like, fuck, I, I wish literally, I my appointment. I, I literally just... can't even handle this. It, like, stresses me out. I know that 
people have like so bad such bad survivor's guilt but just imagine if it was some like something like this like well especially something. because i mean carla's not lazy right she gets up early every day she walks to school on a regular basis but this day she was asking her mom for a ride it breaks my heart her mother reported her missing that day when she didn't return home from school and 12 days later her body was found some boys were playing with bb guns and they came across a black bra, which led them to her body. It was near a trail, hidden under a large piece of plastic. Now, a couple things about this. If you remember, Jenny's body was covered. An igloo of branches and debris is how it was described. Right. So this kind of sounded similar to me, right? Like the plastic over it. She had been raped and strangled. Which is the same as Jenny, because Michelle was the one that had her throat slit? Yep. Did this happen before or after Jenny was killed? This happened in 1980, 80. so before. Michelle happened in what? 1986? This happened six years prior. I could still get behind it that it's the same killer. Well, because remember, Jenny's killer was a little older, too. So, I mean, it to me, it would kind of make sense that... They could be connected. Okay, again, David Fisher was considered a suspect in this case. Who's David Fisher? He's the one that escaped from the prison, farm, unsecured situation. Right. Yeah. He, however, has not been connected to the crime or any other crime, like during the time that he was out or missing. Because they did eventually catch him. He probably him. didn't commit any crimes. I know. He's like just laying low and he's getting all the these all these crimes are getting pinned on him. Murders. <laughs> also, Guy Rasmussen was also considered a suspect in this case because he knew Carla and Angela Meeker, who is a 13-year-old girl that is still missing, but he has also never been officially connected to these crimes. Now, it does appear that they have DNA in this case. So I'm assuming that's why these two men were not connected. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if this DNA has been... Tested for that. Entered into these genealogy websites or entered into the databases or if it's even good DNA. Yeah, exactly. Because we're we're going back even six years earlier than Michelle and Jenny's cases where they couldn't really do anything with it. Yeah, who knows if it was like tampered with or stored improperly is the most common reason that this dna isn't viable her mother says it was the worst mistake she has ever made she said that her daughter was mad and didn't say goodbye to her or give her a kiss when she left for school and her mother actually had to move because she couldn't bear to see her neighbors and wonder if one of them had killed her baby oh i would definitely move i would start a Fresh ass new life. I don't even I don't even think I could. This location is a 20-minute drive from Point Defiance Park where Jenny went missing and only 13 minutes from Puget Park where Michelle went missing. Okay. And then that's the longest one that we have. But then we have Carrie Ann Walker, who was 15. You want me to read any of these? Oh yeah, go for it. You're just gonna read the whole (laughs) thing. I don't know. Go for it. Maybe they're tired of hearing your voice, Mom. And then we have Carrie Ann Walker, who was 15, she lived in Renton, which Renton is not far from Tacoma. 30 minutes from Tacoma. It's just like another town right over. She was found on December 22nd, 1989, north of Tequila. 
also really close. It's this, These are all really close to each other. This mm-hmm. is not far. The Renton High School freshman was last seen on December 20th, 1988. When her mom was leaving for work, she peeked in the room and saw her sleeping. And she was... And that was it. That was it. Well, she was found. So she was found like a year later. Mm-hmm. Like almost exactly a year later. That's weird. She was found on December 22nd, 1989. And was last seen... December 20th of 1988. Right. And I don't, I didn't dig into any of these cases. I don't know if any of these girls were considered runaways. I don't know any more detail than what I'm giving you right now. I just wanted yeah. to give an example of how many similar how cases. How many young girls are missing from this area in the same type of thing. Yep. Okay. And then we have Debbie Gonzalez, who's 14 of Auburn. Which, also really close. Which is 15 minutes from Tacoma. And she is found on September 26, 1987, in the woods off of Auburn Black Diamond Highway, west of Black Diamond. There is no obvious cause of death. And then we have Shannon L. Peace, who was 15, and she lived in Tacoma. She was found April 4, 1988, in a field in Lakewood, believed to have disappeared on April 3, 1988. Yeah, she was from the Ponder's Corner area in Tacoma. Okay. So Tacoma again. Another Tacoma. And here's another Tacoma. Christy Vorak, who was 13 and last seen in Tacoma in 1982, she was added to the list of possible victims of the Green River Killer, actually. You want to put blame on the Green River Killer? I say go for it. I say blame whoever you need to blame to sleep at night. I don't know. Mm, I support it. I think that's fine. Okay, so then we have Kimberly DeLang. She was from Sumner and found on August 20th, 1988, east of Edenclaw off Highway 410. And she was last seen in Puyallup shopping area about 20 minutes from Tacoma. Yeah, and this is interesting. Anne Lee Shebony, who was 14 from Puyallup, was found on September 17, 1991 in the same area. Yeah, right off Highway 410. Right. Edenclaw. So that's kind of crazy. We have, what, 88, a three-year gap. So if those two cases aren't connected, that would be crazy to me. Um, Yeah. Yes, it would be. I would not be okay with that. So those are just some, not even all, you guys, the list. God, don't go to Tacoma. I don't know. The list of (laughs) missing and murdered people unsolved was so long. I like the tiny disses in this episode towards Tacoma. Sorry, Tacoma. Also, <laughs> you stink. Yeah. So sorry, Tacoma, for picking on you today, but I There's kind of- There's a lot of little girls that have gone missing from I Tacoma, kind of get so the impression it's... that you deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. I say fair enough. I fair enough. So um, I would like to hear your argument if you do live in Tacoma. I really actually, please give your <laughs> argument for why Tacoma is a good place. I really just, I just want to hear it. I really, I think- I think you'd be good. Yeah, maybe maybe post something in your Instagram story and tag us and then we'll have the ba- we'll have And then start. throughout the week we can put like nice things about Tacoma sprinkled throughout our story yeah. on the week that we release this so episode. So please send us your defense for Tacoma. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so a couple of good sources Dateline did an episode on this Jenny's mom was very involved with a lot of interviews and different things. Michelle's mom, not as much, but I think that everybody handles things differently. So 
Criminal Disclosure also did an episode on this. I mean, there, there's so many like crossovers. Like there's a lot more out there about Jenny's case than there is about Michelle's case. And I don't know if that's because of her mom's involvement with the press and with everything or just timing. I think sometimes, because this is not a one of them deserves more attention than the other. But for some reason, when Jenny's case hit the media, it had a stronger reaction than Michelle's. Yeah. So um, everyone knows Madeline McCain. There was a little, there was another little kid. I don't know. I think it was a little girl that also went missing from the same area. I think she was British and she went missing from the same area like a few years before or like after. And it's like almost same. And nobody knows about it. No one has any idea about it just because it literally just has to do with timing. What's happening in the media around that? Like, is this the biggest thing happening in the media? And then also parents' involvement, I feel like, has to do at least something. Something, yeah. With it, but I feel like a lot of it just has to do with timing and what's already in the media at that point for it to break out like that. Because, like, Madeline McCain went crazy. No one even knows about the other kid that went missing. Yeah, I don't even know their name. No, I don't even know if it's a boy or a girl. All I know is that there was another kid that went missing. We should look up that case. Around the same time. Okay, so kind of a crazy story. I am so happy that these two men have been caught, and I'm so mad that they got to live a normal life. That's what pisses me off. That honestly is one of the biggest things that angers me is people who commit these heinous crimes and fucking live a goddamn normal life for a long time. On that note, I would like to apologize to anybody that struggled to get through our last episode with the amount of cussing that Madison did. (laughs) Yes, we had a complaint about it. We had a complaint. (laughs) So I I honestly, I was like, which episode? And they're like the last one. And I was like, really? Because I actually try to take most of them out. And sometimes, oh, you mean the old episode? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Geraldine's case. And it oh, wasn't, Geraldine. Oh, Geraldine. And it wasn't when we were talking about the case. It's when we would talk about our own experiences. Like when it's when we went off script that the cussing gets out of hand sometimes. And it's not intentional. It's really not. But I was FaceTiming with my sister when I got the message. And I was like, Hannah, were we cussing a lot in that episode? And she was like, I don't remember any cussing. And I was like, what the heck? And I was like, no, I feel like I need to go listen to it, but I don't have time. And then like 20 minutes later, she sends me like a at minute 20.1. Maddie says, fuck. At minute 20.49, Maddie says, shit. At minute. And it's like, Hannah was sending this to you. God damn it. That's so funny. And it's like this long list of like all the, how many cuss words were in it. And I was like, you can stop listening now. I get it. Like, my bad. I'm sorry. I am. I'm really bad. I'm really, really bad. And, and so am I. But I am able to control myself a little Dude, more. I can't. It's this. literally part of my know. normal vocabulary, and it I do apologize too. Yes, but I don't have self control like <laughs> you do. I can't turn it off. I don't know how you do. Uh, oh, I also hate that case. That also probably has a reason why I was yes. swearing so much. Is because yeah, that is 100%. one of, I do not. Although like, we were definitely 
it was definitely just like in a casual manner. It wasn't like to do with her. It was like our own. Maybe I was nervous. I don't know. I don't know. I'll come up with more excuses <laughs> if you want me to. I'm sorry for swearing so okay. much. So let us know what you guys thought of this case. I am so excited for every goddamn criminal that gets caught based on DNA. And I know that there is some controversy around law enforcement being able to use some of these databases. And I am sorry if you have issue with that, but I hope that it never stops. So we would like to thank Ashley Payne for joining our Patreon. Thank you so much. Or our Patreon. I don't know. Thank you so much. We really, really appreciate your support. All right. Then we have Stacey Watson. Hi, Stacey. Thanks for joining. We have Tamara Buckley. Hi, Tamara. Tamara? Tamara. Tamara? Yes. Tamara Buckley. (laughs) Tamara Buckley. Okay. And then we have Sophie Hammond. Hi, Sophie. We got Whitney B. Whitney B. We don't know your last name. Actually, we probably do. We could probably look it up. But you wrote Whitney B. as your name on your profile. So that's what you get. That's what you get. That's what we're going with. All right. And then we we have Helen Willits. Helen Willits. Hi, Helen. Welcome to Patreon. Thank you so much to all of our patrons. So thank you all of you so much for supporting us. We really, really appreciate you. And we could not continue doing this without you. Yeah, seriously, my mom would probably off herself if she didn't have a slight (laughs) income coming in from this. Because she does everything. But yeah, if you guys want more content or want more of mine and Maddie's crazy personalities, uh, Patreon is where you should go to get that. Also, we are going to start doing more videos so you can actually visually watch us record the podcast. And a lot of that's probably going to go into Patreon, so get ready for that. You get to see how many times my mom hits me during a recording. Don't worry. We're not going to do that all the time. We're going to do like one so that you guys can make fun of us and then we'll see what you think because... Because I can't read, so it's not super pretty without the editing. But at least maybe we'll do like a we'll do like mini Patreon episodes. Maybe we'll do a recording for like a Patreon. Yeah, episode definitely some see. mini ones. That'd be good. Like a mini, like definitely a mini one. Maybe easy words or something. <laughs> I'm gonna have to edit the entire script so that Maddie has no hard words to read, and I'm gonna have to make it really big on the screen, and then you. probably make her wear like a shock collar. So when she gets distracted, I can just shock her in the oh middle God, of the that's video. Straight. That's wor- that's problem solved. If I was a child, that would be. Cons- <laughs> child abuse and would be well deserved okay so thanks for tuning in you guys so fun and so exciting we are so happy to be here and we will see you guys next week bye Hi guys, I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And we are here recording at Lost in the Woods. What were you going to say? I have no idea. How long (laughs) have we been doing this for? I don't know. I, my mind just like went blank all of a sudden. I was like, wait, what are we recording? Like we record other things besides things for our podcast. Yeah. I don't know. This is where I'm at right now. Do you have a secret other podcast? Are you cheating on me (laughs) with another podcast? No, definitely not. Definitely not. Okay, I do have some ideas for other podcasts, though. Oh, I have also great ideas for other podcasts. Shit. See, we really need more time. We need more 
um, researchers, and we need we need a good editor. That's really but, what we need. But our editor has to think like I do. Not like me. <laughs> that is honestly the biggest reason why I don't do anything in the podcast. Because is am I lazy? Yes. Am I bad at research and things like that? Yes. Am I not a productive human being? Also, yes. But one of the biggest things is that I have an entire different mindset than my mother in what I think should, should be in the podcast. And should not. Yes. And should not. Yeah. I would be leaving a lot more funny things in the podcast and screw-ups. Well, and- it's not even that that would bother me. I'm I'm fine with that. Although, I do try to be respectful to our stories and keep a lot of that at the end or keep it to a minimum during the episode. Yeah, I support. I just think I just throw yes. in a little bit of... My issue with your editing would be that you wouldn't edit out mistakes. You would leave them in there. Some... I think you would leave them all in there. (laughs) Some of them. Because I think it's funny. I leave some mistakes in. But I mean like background noises and like mouth noises and things like that. Mouth noises, probably edit those. Mystic ones back in the fucking house. Mystic, you cannot come in here. You're being obnoxious. In or out? Like what the hell, See if he wants in the house. Remember when Cadence went missing? That was actually a really good, that was a really good, good time. I went to go pick up. My sister from her friend's house. First off, I'm going out to dinner with my sisters. They are on their way to come pick me up. Cadence comes upstairs and she says, Hey, mom, can I go to my friend Jessica's just down the street? And I was like, yes, but you have to be back by three o'clock or whatever time it was because I have to leave at three and I want you home before I leave. She's like, okay, no problem. So just before three or around three, I send Maddie down to go get her because she hasn't come home yet. Or maybe just after three. And Maddie goes down there and she knocks on the door and nobody's home. There's no answer. The house is dark. She comes back and she's like, Cadence isn't there. And I'm like, that's weird. I'm like, she definitely said Jessica's, right? And we're like, yeah, we're trying to figure out, could she have gone somewhere else? Couldn't find her anywhere. They're just gone. So I go down to the house. I'm pounding on the door. Nobody's answering. I don't have a phone number for this mother because... Mm -hmm. We lived next. We lived next door. We lived down the street from each oh, other. Oh, and all the cars were gone out front of their house as well because the parents were actually out of town. No, the cars were there. That's how the police got their phone numbers because they ran the license plate of the car. Well, none of their main cars there. They have like the they they have a bunch of cars in their driveway, but like their main van there was were, gone. There were two cars in the driveway. Yeah, but their main van was gone and stuff. Like their main cars yeah. were gone. So we can't find her. She's gone. I'm not totally panicking yet, but we do jump in the car and we go to all of the children's houses in the neighborhood that we know and knock on their doors. I call, I message, I get we a hold walk of through the woods. We walk through the woods. Her Maddie or our neighbors who are amazing, their teenage son gets friends together and they go marching into the woods to see because we have a bunch of trails near our house. And everybody's on alert. I call my sister who's on her way we to have- me. We also have just about, like, every neighbor out front their house, too, because we're, like, yelling. Yeah, so all of all of our neighborhood is coming out. Everybody's starting to look for How these kids. Was, Lulu was, like, fourth grade? She, let's see. 13? Yeah, I think she was, like, nine, maybe. I think she was, like, nine, nine or ten. So she's, like, nine or ten at the time. So everybody's out looking for her. 
I feel like she was younger than that. My sister shows up to pick me up, and I'm like, I can't find Cadence. So we start searching for her, and my sister's like, she was like, did you hear about the attempted abduction in your neighborhood a couple streets down last week? And I was like, what? She was like, yeah, apparently some van tried to lure some little kid into their van just a couple streets down from where you live. And so right then and there, I called 911. Mm -hmm. It took them 40 minutes to get to us. They ran the plates of the parent's car that was in the driveway, got the phone number. The police officer called the phone number, and her mom answered, and her mom said, I'm not even home. I'm out of town. Yep. And we literally, like, she's like, uh, my husband's working. He's not home. I'm out of town. I'm. She was, like, in another state or something. Yeah. We went into full-blown panic mode. We could not find them anywhere. So I'm like, okay, maybe she went down here. Nobody was home, and then she got kidnapped or something. So another hour goes by of searching for her. Turns out, at the end of the day, that... Cadence had gone with her friend and the older her older brother to who go, was 17 to go to the dog park. The dad finally gets back to us and says that they all went to the dog park. Their 17-year-old son, their daughter, who's our daughter's age and our daughter, and they all went to the dog park. And he was under the impression that Cadence had permission to go. So we're like, oh, thank God. So then the cop calls the son and he says, yeah, we're at the dog park. We're just getting ready to leave. She's like, okay, you need to come back home immediately. 40 minutes later, they're still not back. So we send Hannah to the dog park to look for them. Mm-hmm. Searches the dog park. They're not there. The cop calls him back. No answer. I'm like, oh my God, she's been kidnapped by this 17-year-old brother now. Like totally panicking. No, they decided to go to the dog park two towns over. And that's why it took them so long to get back. She was totally fine. She was totally unharmed. But the 17-year-old son probably had a heart attack when the cop pulled him aside to scold and lecture him for taking a child without permission. But scariest moment ever. It was terrifying. Gotta be David Fisher. Oh, my God. Wait, speaking of prison. uh, There's... So people get, like, sneak phones into prisons and stuff. Yeah. And make TikToks and post them. Oh, yeah. Mom, it's fucking hysterical. I was watching this. I couldn't, at first I didn't realize what the video was, but it was people fishing out the prison window to get packages that people had thrown over the gate. And I was like, oh my God, they're smuggling drugs. I'm literally watching someone smuggle drugs into a prison right now. Mm -hmm. No, it wasn't drugs. It was food. They were smuggling nice, good food into the prisons via bottles. If you've ever seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine, it's top ramen non-commissary top ramen that is the high-ticket item in that show when when one of them goes to prison. So basically, like, it's traded like currency, and it's the um, picante beef is the flavor that, that's the most popular. That's the one that everybody wants. I don't know. That's funny. No, but I literally was watching them fish with a pole for food to bring into their prison. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> prison TikTok. 